Good morning. Continuing our series on the local church. Our topic for this morning is deacons. Now, if you are new to First Baptist Church, uh, you should know this is not the usual way in which we do our Sunday morning sermons. Uh, Our Sunday morning sermons are typically uh, what we would call expositional. That is, we would uh, take a passage of scripture uh, and then we'll read through it and explain it and apply it. And so whatever this morning's passage is about, that's what that morning's sermon is about. Uh, What we've been doing in this recent season is a topical series on the local church. And so it's kind of like the reverse, right? In a sense, uh, the sermon, like what the sermon is about, that's chosen first. And then we go through the Bible, seeing what the Bible has to say about that specific topic. And so in this past month, in this series, we've been covering topics about the local church. We started with uh, what is the church And the definition that we came up with is that the church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. Then we talked about preaching, and we made the point that the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, that is the focal point of the gathering of the church. Then we looked at elders, those whom God has appointed to lead and shepherd the church by the means of the word. And then last week we looked at the biblical qualifications for those elders. Today, Lord willing, we're going to cover the topic of deacons, looking at what the scriptures have to say about the other office in the church. So we can start by just asking a question, uh, what exactly is a deacon? If you went out there and you polled uh, 10 different Christians from 10 different churches, And you ask them each, what exactly is a deacon? I think they'd all agree that deacons come from the Bible, and I think they'd all agree that deacons do stuff in the church. But that might be as far as the agreement would go. Like, what are deacons supposed to do? And how do deacons relate to our previous topic of elders? Like, are they the same thing, or do they act like checks and balances on each other? Like, what exactly is going on there? Uh, You ask 10 different Christians uh, these questions, and you might get 11 different answers. And so if we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to do church the way that the Bible says that we should do church, well, we need to know what the Bible has to say on this very important topic. So here's our game plan for this morning. First, we're going to try to answer that question, what exactly is a deacon? We're going to look at three biblical aspects of deacons. Uh, and uh, just for your listening pleasure, all three of the points are going to begin with the letter R. We've got the role of the deacons, uh, the requirement of deacons, and the reward of deacons. And then after we go through those three points, I'm going to give you four points of application. So first, point number one, let's think about the role of deacons. I'll start by saying this. Uh, There really aren't any passages from the scriptures that I could point to that clearly define for us the role of deacons. Uh, That wasn't the case for elders. For elders, there's verses like 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. 
And there's verses like 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so those verses very clearly tell us that the elders of the church are to shepherd and to exercise authority and to rule and to teach and preach. With deacons, we don't have such clear-cut verses. Uh, Instead, we've got to do uh, a little bit more work. We've got to kind of piece the puzzle together some. A good starting point, I think, would be the word itself, a deacon. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, uh, which just means servant. Uh, And so when we see that Greek word or its variants in our New Testaments, uh, it's often not referring to the biblical office. It's often just referring to uh, servants uh, or those who serve, service in general. So for example, you guys know the story of uh, the wedding at Cana. Uh, Those guys who serve the wine in John chapter 2, they're called diakonos because they're servants. A related noun is used in Luke chapter 10 when it says that Martha was distracted with much serving, uh, diakonia. Or you'll remember the story. Remember we've been in the the book of Luke uh, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's got that fever Luke 4.39, remember what she does right afterwards. Uh, He stood over her, rebuked the fever, it left her. Immediately, Peter's mother-in-law rose and began to serve, to deacon them. And so the word itself, deacon, diakonos, it just means to serve. And that gives us a big clue as to the role of the biblical office with that name. A second clue comes from a narrative in Acts chapter 6. So turn there in your Bibles, or you can look along as the verses are magically appearing on the screen here. Uh, Acts 6.1 says, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and so we'll just pause right there. Uh, you've got the early church in Jerusalem. It is just growing exponentially at this point. The apostles are preaching the resurrected Jesus and many are coming to faith. And uh, so what started with just 120 people in the upper room is quickly becoming thousands upon thousands. Uh, Acts 4.4, it says that the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So you add in the women and you add in the increase since chapter 4 as we get to chapter 6. We're looking at well over 10,000 believers by this point. And sometimes you can have the perception that everything was just fine and dandy and and wonderful and perfect in the early church. But the Bible clearly says that that was not the case. Uh, Because even when you're talking about God's people trying to live in accordance with God's word, well, in this fallen world, problems always seem to arise. And in the case of the Jerusalem church, it was a problem with food distribution a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because, of their, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, the Hellenists there refers to uh, those who would be Greek speakers. Uh, the Hebrews would refer to those who would be Hebrew speakers. And so uh, I don't think that this was an issue of like sinful favoritism. And I say that because the way the apostles address it, uh, they address it more, of a, like, more as a logistical issue than as a sin issue that needed to be rebuked. Uh, but whatever the origins, th- there's some issue here at hand. Uh, the Greek-speaking widows, they feel neglected. They feel overlooked 
in the distribution of food. And this is a serious issue. Because if this isn't properly addressed, uh, this kind of grumbling can easily lead to major division in the body. And this isn't like division along any old lines, like, hey, what's your favorite baseball team? Right? This is along the always potentially explosive lines of language and culture. Like that kind of eternal, internal strife, that would have been disastrous for the early church especially in light of the persecution that's about to come down from the outside. And so everybody's kind of looking to the apostles for leadership on this because the apostles were the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And what is their verdict? We'll look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so the apostles, they're not going to manage this project themselves. But do you see why? It's not that they don't want to get their hands dirty or they think that this work is like below them, below their dignity. It's not that they thought that they were capable of handling it. And it's not that they think that food distribution is just unimportant or insignificant. Like, who cares if they don't get enough food, right? They just need to be more spiritually minded. They need to listen to our sermons. No, the apostles don't minimize the physical need at all. Uh, They recognize how important the issue is, but they just know that they can't do it. It is not right that we give up preaching the word of God. They know that if they spend themselves on meeting the physical needs of the body, well, they would necessarily be drawn away from the priority of preaching the word of God. They know their own limitations. As finite human beings, right, they can only be in one place at one time. They can only fully devote themselves to one thing at a time. And so this really goes back to what we said two weeks ago about preaching, about the primacy of preaching in the life of the church. Right? Yes, Uh, Physical needs are very important. Material needs are very important. Practical needs are very important. But the most important thing, like the thing that if the apostles were distracted from doing it, it would not be good. It wouldn't be right. That's the preaching of God's word. And dear church, that, by the way, is a really important truth for us to remember as a church giving up the primacy of God's word and instead giving ourselves to meeting physical and material and practical needs. That's not like, well, our church just has a different focus. Uh, No, in the words of the apostles, it's not right when something like that happens in a church. The word of God must be first and foremost. So what's the solution? Well, look at verses three and four. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the practical administration, the meeting of physical needs, let's delegate it to others so that the apostles can continue to focus on the ministry of the word. And what happens as a result? 
Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think Luke includes that verse there to point out that God seems to bless this decision abundantly. So two just general principles that we can take away from this. Number one, God cares about our physical needs. And so should his people. Especially for those in the church who cannot provide for themselves, such as widows. And second, God wants his church to prioritize his word, the ministry of the word. And so in the post-apostolic church, Right, the church after the apostles, well, elders are those who have been tasked with the ministry of the word. And since God wants elders to be able to focus on that ministry of the word, not be distracted from it, but at the same time, God cares for our physical needs, so the office of deacon arises. And so now we can kind of begin to put this puzzle together. A deacon... Remember, diakonos is a servant. It's one who serves the church. And more specifically, a deacon is to serve in whatever ways needed that would allow the elders to focus on the ministry of the word. And so the example that we have from Acts chapter 6 is uh, just meeting the physical needs of widows. But it doesn't have to end there. It would also include caring for the physical needs of Orphans, or the infirmed, or the elderly, or shut-ins, or any other members in need of practical assistance. And it would also include just some of the practical necessities of church gatherings. For example, preparing the elements for when we take the Lord's Supper. And churches back then didn't have buildings. And even now, right, many churches don't have buildings, but God has been very gracious to our church in giving us a building in which to meet. But that comes with a lot of practical necessities that have to be met in terms of the properties of the church. For example, the light bulbs, they don't change themselves. And the electric bill doesn't pay itself. Those are really important tasks of service that need to be taken care of so that the church might gather together and worship. Like our meetings, just they wouldn't be the same if we had no electricity in this building. But it would not be good for the elders to be distracted from the ministry of the word by Con Edison. And so that's just one practical example of where the very valuable service of deacons would come in. So maybe the most helpful way to think about the role of a deacon is to juxtapose it with the role of an elder. which is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. An elder is to rule and to exercise oversight over the church, primarily by the means of preaching and teaching the word of God. Deacons do not have that responsibility or that spiritual authority. Rather, they are those in the congregation who have been especially recognized and appointed to serve the body in various ways, And so whereas the emphasis on elders is on their leadership, uh, the emphasis for deacons is on their service, uh, on their deaconing. Now deacons can teach and preach, right? There's no prohibition there. But that's not an expected part of the office. 
And so we'll get to the requirements of deacon in just a minute. Uh, But you'll notice, if you look at 1 Timothy, that uh, able to teach is not one of the requirements for a deacon. It is a requirement for elders, 1 Timothy 3, 2, because it is an expected part of the office of elder. It's part of their expected role. But it's not a requirement for deacons because it's not an expected part of their role. Now, this may be new to some of you in this room. Maybe you grew up in a church in which the deacons were the ones who had the spiritual authority in the church, and so they were essentially functioning as elders. Maybe you grew up in a church in which the deacons were like a second group that oversaw the church, and so you have the elders and the deacons, and the deacons act as a check or a balance on the elders, kind of like how we might think of the branches of our government. But neither of those examples... Uh, as commonplace as they are in Baptist churches, is really biblical. And so to summarize, point number one, the role of deacons. The role of deacons is to serve the physical and logistical needs of the church body so that the elders can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Which brings us to point number two, the requirements of deacons. Given the importance of the role of deacons in the life of the church, well, it stands to reason that God would require one who would serve in that capacity to be qualified. Uh, Just like elders must be biblically qualified, so deacons must be biblically qualified. And so for this point, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll remember from last week's sermon that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 was about the requirements for elders, the qualifications for elders. Well, verse 8 is where Paul starts talking about deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So we'll just quickly run through these. And because there's significant overlap with the elder qualifications from last week, I'm not going to spend too much time here. Uh, If you weren't here for last week's sermon on elder qualifications, uh, I can't stand the sound of my own voice, so I kind of sympathize with you as I tell you to do this. Uh, But I think you would benefit from listening to that sermon because by knowing about elder qualifications, you will be better equipped to understand deacon qualifications. Uh, But first, verse 8, right? Deacons must be dignified. Uh, That's a term that's got some similarities to the first elder qualification of being above reproach. Dignified, right? It means to be respectable, honorable, uh, esteemed in terms of your reputation as far as your character goes. Uh, Another translation has a worthy of respect. I think that works well. Uh, Just like with elders, of course, you're standing before God. That's ultimately what matters. God alone is your judge. Before a public office like this, your reputation before people does matter. Uh, The person who says, I don't care what anybody thinks, well, that person most definitely should not be a deacon. Uh, Second, deacons must be not double-tongued. Double-tongued, in the Greek, it's the word dilogos. Uh, D meaning two. Logos, you know that word means word. And so, 
too worded. A deacon must not be too worded. This is the person that says one thing to one person and then turns around and says a completely different thing to another person. Uh, We might say that they speak out of both sides of their mouth. And so more generally, this is someone who is, in their speech, dishonest or manipulative or deceptive or unreliable. And of course, as Jesus said, what comes out of their mouth really just reflects what's in their heart because out of the abundance of the heart, uh, the mouth speaks. A third, deacons must not be addicted to much wine. A fourth, deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Two aspects of self-control here, and we're not going to go into detail because we talked about these exact principles last week. You'll notice that they are basically equivalent to the elder qualifications of not being a drunkard and not being a lover of money. And you can see why not greedy for dishonest gain, that would be particularly relevant for deacons because they would typically be involved in handling some of the resources of the church. A fifth, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Mystery of the faith, that sounds really like enigmatic and cryptic, but it's not meant to be. It's just referring to the gospel. The word mystery in the New Testament refers to something that was previously hidden but is now revealed. And so specifically here, Paul's referring to the truths of the gospel. You can clearly see that if you look down at verse 16, Uh, where that word mystery is used again, uh, again, clearly in the context of the gospel. Uh, They've got to be people who hold such gospel truths with a clear conscience. A sixth, deacons must be tested. Uh, Tested not only in the sense of kind of letting them go through some ups and downs in their spiritual lives, that they might prove themselves to be faithful through it all, but also, I think, tested in terms of their serving, That is, you only want to appoint someone a deacon who is already deaconing, like who is already serving the body in many ways. Uh, Churches should not make the mistake of saying, well, we we need to get that person more involved. Uh, We need to get that person serving, and so uh, let's make them a deacon. Uh, That'll get them serving. That's like saying, uh, we need to teach our teenager to be more responsible, stop being so irresponsible, just give him a credit card and he'll figure it out. That's a really bad idea, right? Let him be tested first. Uh, Seventh, I'm going to skip over verse 11 for just a moment and we're going to come back to it in a minute. If you look at verse 12, the deacon must be the husband of one wife. When we said last week that refers to being a one-woman man, right? Faithful with regards to the opposite sex. An eighth, a deacon ought to have a solid family life, managing their children and their own households well. Remember that requirement from 1 Timothy 3.4 for elders, but you'll notice that there is a major difference. It does not come with the same rationale that Paul gives in verse 5 for elders. Look at verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, it makes sense that Paul would say that about elders, but not deacons, because deacons are not called to manage and oversee the church like elders are. But even though they're not called to that kind of spiritual oversight, they still must have orderly families. Otherwise, what kind of reputation would that bring upon the church? 
as you think about these seven qualifications, as you look through that list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, notice that all of them are measures of a person's character as opposed to their technical competence. I think it's an important thing for us to remember because we might have a tendency, a temptation to look at people who have certain like administrative skills or uh, certain technical competencies, management skills, financial skills, whatever it might be, and automatically think that person is going to make a good deacon. Well, maybe, but notice that all these qualifications are about character. And so we never want to overlook character for the sake of technical competency or skill. Ideally, you'd have both. But above all, right, it's godly character that's the non-negotiable. So now let's come back to verse 11. We skipped over this earlier. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now this verse seems to be talking about the wives of deacons. But now if you have an ESV in front of you, look at your footnote. It should say, or wives likewise, or women likewise. You see, the Greek word for woman is the same as the Greek word for wife. And so whether you translate the Greek word as uh, woman or wife, that depends entirely on the context. And that's not an unimportant translational decision because if that should be wives, well, it means that only men can serve as deacons and that verse is then describing what the wives of deacons must be like. But if that should be women, well, it means that Paul is giving the requirements for women who serve as deacons in verse 11, right? Right in the middle of requirements for male deacons in verses 8 through 10 and again in verse 12. So which is it? Can women serve as deacons or not? Well, we discussed two weeks ago why women can't be elders uh, because of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so you'll see in that verse, 1 Timothy 2.12, that the two things that the elder must do teach and exercise authority, those are the very two things that Paul clearly says that women cannot do in the church. So what about deacons? Well, given that deacons are doing what deacons should be doing, not teaching and not exercising authority, but serving under the oversight of elders, I don't think there's anything in the Bible that would prohibit women from serving as deacons. And so 1 Timothy 3.11 is probably about the women, women deacons. And so there Paul gives four requirements of women serving in the deacon role. But actually, if you look at these requirements in verses 8 through 10, are very, very similar to the requirements given of the men serving in the deacon role. So look at verse 11 against verse 8. Uh, You see the same word dignified, right? Leading off both lists. It's the same word in the Greek. Then you see not slanderers, which really belongs to the same category as not being double-tongued, right? It's of speech. Then you see sober-minded, which is related to the idea of not being addicted to much wine, right? A.K.A. being sober. And then you see faithful in all things, 
which is similar to verse 10, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless, if they prove themselves faithful in all things. So in our church, we currently do have women serving as deacons in that kind of capacity. But the bigger point here, right, point number two, is that whether they're men or women, they must be qualified. Right? They must be men or women of strong, proven character as laid out in First Timothy chapter 3. Point number two, the requirement of deacons. Point number three, the reward of deacons. So we've talked about what deacons do. Point number one, the role of deacons. We talked about who deacons should be, like what kind of people they should be. Point number two, the requirement of deacons. Now let's think about their reward, the ways in which God blesses them for their service. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. But let's think about why that is the case. Like why would serving as a deacon lead to great confidence in the faith? That would have been a curious statement to make, especially in the Greek culture of that day a culture that looked down on service as something unworthy, a culture that looked down on those who serve as being of low dignity. But if you've read the Gospels, you know just how often Jesus pointed out that the kingdom of God is just very, very different from the world in that regard. Matthew twenty three eleven. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? The greatest among you shall be your Diakonos, your servant. Mark 9.35, he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, so who is first? He must be last of all and servant, diakonos of all. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 44, the disciples are arguing about who's going to sit at the right hand and who's going to sit at the left hand. And Jesus calls them to him and says to them, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So that's how the world looks at these things. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And you know what the Greek word is there. It's diakonos. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so as deacons are especially set apart by the body of Christ to serve, to do, what exact, to do exactly what Jesus commanded of his disciples in those verses, and so at the very least, right, at the very least, their obedience to God's word through service should give deacons great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. But I think there's more. There's more to the deacon's reward because it's not just that by serving, they're doing what Jesus said. It's also that by serving, they're doing what Jesus did. Brothers and sisters, there are few greater joys in the Christian life than just being like Jesus. I just read Mark 10, verses 42 to 44, uh, those verses in which Jesus tells his disciples to serve one another, to deacon one another. The very next verse is Mark 10, 45. And you know Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to deacon, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I hope you see how I'm putting this all together. Point number three, the reward of deacons. We're not talking here about material rewards, whether here or even in heaven. We're talking about something even better than that, uh, to emulate and to imitate the example of our beloved Savior. Uh, The great confidence in the faith that comes from Christ-likeness, that comes from being conformed to the image of Jesus, uh, that comes from being transfigured from one image of glory to another as you behold his glory. So for the deacon, that comes from not only doing what Jesus said, as valuable as that is, but also from doing what Jesus did. Right? The ultimate servant, the ultimate diakonos, right? the one who came to serve. Well, that brings us now to some practical points of application. If what we've said about deacons is true, if that's biblical, so what? Right? How then should we live? First application point. Uh, This isn't something that you have to do as much as it is kind of a way to think. Application point number one. uh, Trustees should be considered deacons. So every week as we've been going through this series in the church, right, some of the application points, uh, hopefully they're general and helpful to all who are gathered, whether you're a visitor or a first-timer, some of them are really specific to our congregation, right? To the members of this church, as we consider how our church is structured, uh, this application point would fall into that category. Uh, so First Baptist Church, right, as we think about our church's officers, uh, let's understand that trustees should be considered deacons. Uh, so we have six trustees, and the reason that we have trustees is because uh, the state of New York requires it of religious organizations like ours. And of course, we want to do everything above board and we want to do everything in accordance with the law. And our trustees do an excellent job of managing our property and managing our finances and uh, ensuring that the church operates in relation to the government and banking institutions and uh, insurance companies in a manner that's full of integrity and wisdom. But as we consider this morning, like what even is a deacon? Well, it's someone who meets the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church then sets apart to serve in a specific capacity that allows the elders of the church to focus on the ministry of the word. That's essentially what our trustees already are. We already use the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to evaluate trustee candidates, which we should since they are officers of the church. And we already set apart the trustees for a specific role of service And so even though we have never recognized them as deacons, well, they're deacons. You know the saying, if it walks like a deacon and swims like a deacon and quacks like a deacon, it's a deacon. And so one of the changes that is going to be in the bylaws revision that I'm going to propose to you, members of First Baptist Church, is to make that equivalence explicit. Right, to recognize our trustees as biblical deacons. And that, Lord willing, will hopefully protect our church in the future from ever having someone who is not biblically qualified from serving in that office. Application point number one, trustees should be considered deacons. 
Application point number two is to honor your deacons. The Bible clearly says to honor those to whom honor is owed. And so if we're understanding the role of deacons rightly, if we're understanding the honorable nature of serving, how Christ-like that is, well, then it stands to reason that we as a church ought to honor our deacons. So church, I want you to honor those who serve you as deacons. On our deacon board, we have Nathan Santa Maria, Winston James, Donna Stevenson, Irma G. Ox, Sean Whited. They have served well as deacons. And on our trustee board, and as I just argued, right, they are deacons themselves, uh, we have Max Bermudez, we have Daniel Ku, Adam Golzer, Leah Hong, Daniel Jacobson. Uh, they have served well as deacons. And time would not permit me to list all in our body who have served in these capacities in the past, but God knows who you are, and he knows your faithful service to him. Those dear brothers and sisters have served our church so faithfully. They've devoted countless hours to meeting the practical needs of their brothers and sisters, uh, taking care of this building, uh, paying the bills and counting the offerings and managing various projects. Uh, They've served in so many visible ways. They've also served in many invisible ways. Ways that are really only known on this earth uh, to those whom they have served. But remember what Jesus said. Uh, Truly, I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Uh, God knows your service. And perhaps most importantly, uh, they have, by their labors, freed me to teach and preach the word of God. And so I am thankful for each one of them. And dear church, you ought to be thankful for each one of them as well. And so next time you see one of these brothers or sisters... Thank them. Uh, thank them for how they have served you and the church. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So application point number two is to honor your deacons. Application point number three, uh, strive to be a deacon. I said it last week uh, that each of us should be striving for the elder qualifications whether we ever want to serve as an elder or we even can serve as an elder, simply because the qualifications of an elder are the marks of spiritual maturity for which all of us should be striving. The same thing holds true for the qualifications of a deacon, but I would say even more so because we're taking out now the requirements to be able to teach, which is not for everybody. And so just look at that again. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and then we can add to that marital faithfulness, good parenting. Uh, These are no doubt things for which each and every one of us should be striving. It is not an overstatement to say that every Christian should be striving to be a deacon. I'm not necessarily talking about this specific office. I'm just talking about striving for holiness, right? growing in spiritual maturity. Application point number three, strive to be a deacon. Application point number four is to look to Christ. Look to Christ. 
in all this talk about serving, how deacons serve the church, how we all ought to be serving the church, uh, let's not lose sight of the fact that any serving that we do, we've got to keep it in the right perspective. We've got to see it rightly. Ultimately, Act 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So friends, the gospel is not about how we serve God that we might gain his favor. That we might gain his favor through our deaconing. No, the gospel is about how Christ served us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Christ ultimately serve his people? It is by giving his life as a ransom for many. So dear church, let me remind you of something that, like, I know all of you know this, but I also know how quick we are to forget this. Uh, We who are in Christ, uh, we who are united to Christ, we who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, uh, we are not righteous in God's eyes because of an office that we hold or because what, we, what we've done for him, uh, the projects that we've undertaken for the church or how we've served him and his people. We are perfectly righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for us, how Jesus has served us in giving his life as a ransom for us. He's died for our sins on the cross. He's given us his perfect righteousness. And he's been raised again for our justification. So I said it last week when I preached about elders. I'll say it this week when I preach about deacons. And hopefully I will say it in some form every single week in every single sermon. Right? No matter what the topic, no matter what the text. Right? Look to Christ. If God's people do nothing else Right? Look to Christ. Look to Christ because it's in him and him alone that God's people stand. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we thank you that because of that ransom, we, your people, have been cleansed of our sin and even set apart that we might serve you. So Father, we pray that you would grant to each of us a heart that seeks to serve you and your people by looking to our Savior, uh, whether we hold any uh, formal office or not. Uh, Lord, that your people would desire to be like Christ who served his people by giving his life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.